Welcome to the Queen's Bench Podcast. Today, we're joined by Professor Michael Pratt, an Associate Professor of Law at Queen's University with a rich academic background from institutions like the University of Toronto and the University of Sydney. A seasoned educator, Professor Pratt specializes in private law with significant contributions to contract law and real estate transactions. His recent book on land agreements in Canada and a myriad of insightful publications speak volumes of his expertise. Let's delve into a fascinating conversation with Professor Pratt. Before we jump in, please be sure to check out our website at queensbench.ca and follow us on all of your favorite social media and audio platforms. Now let's get started. Thanks for joining. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's, a, it's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into law? So that's a, that's a circuitous route. It's a bunch <laughs> of rabbit holes that got me here, really. Um, okay. I, I started out in, my undergrad was in math and physics. Uh, and then I, I finished my undergrad and um, traveled. So I, and, and during my, my travels, I sort of, uh, it was in and around the time of the Meech Lake debates and then the Charlottetown Accord. These are historical things now to you guys. <laughs> but, uh, constitutional upheaval in the country. And I I uh, became interested in federalism and the state of the Canadian Constitution. And that was at least um, uh, part of the reason why I decided to um, to go to law school. Okay. Pri- um, prior to that, were you orienting yourself towards physics or, or engineering primarily? Like coming out of high school, what did you think you wanted to do? I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. I, I'd, I'd wanted to be, since I was a kid, I'd had a, a vague notion that I wanted to get a PhD. Okay. I'd heard that there was this thing called a PhD and I had this <laughs> naive idea that's, that's hilarious to me now that somebody with a PhD in field X knows everything there is to know about <laughs> field X. <laughs> so I, I decided that this is what, I was a curious kid and I loved to learn stuff and I was uh, particularly fond of, it sounds a little bit like you, Muck, um, taking stuff apart and okay. uh, uh, lots of work with electronics and um I was a, a ham radio operator. I don't know if that means anything yeah. to anybody. Yeah, uh, I thought about yeah. doing that myself. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's, I think it's a hobby that's very different now than it was because because communication is so easy it's by easier, other means. Yeah, yeah. But back in the day, it was uh, it was a, a big effort to uh, you had to get your license and mm-hmm. study for exams and learn about electronics and radios and and I did all that and um, in fact I I think I. I don't know if the record is still there, but I, I'm I was the youngest person in Canada to get my to get my M- <laughs> wow. license. Wow! Um, and and so you know you're conver- conversing with people through Morse code and building your own antennas and radios and things. And so I thought, you know, the combination of those two things, I thought I'd do uh, graduate work in electronics or electrical engineering or something, electronics engineering. So that was my original. Was was Design. was that interest spurred by your parents at all, or like was their background related at all to engineering, or not at all? Okay, <laughs> no, my dad is a is a retired lawyer. Oh, okay. And my mom um, has worked worked in various capacities. She worked in in HR for the city of Toronto and um, the Toronto Zoo. Uh, no technical or scientific 
aptitude at all. In fact, yeah. <laughs> the apple fell far from the tree here. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, so I, I had a vague idea that I wanted to a get a B, a PhD and B um, pursue electronics. And and you know, so the the physics and math route uh, made some sense. Okay. Um, and then I, but then I left undergrad, and for whatever reason. And and if in my most honest moments, I'm I'm not entirely sure I would do it the same again. Um, I left I left physics, and uh, and decided to try law school. And wow! But I, but I had I had it in mind right from the get go that I was going to teach law. So because I was going to get this damn PhD. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I was, and what do you do with a PhD except yeah. teach? Yeah. So. Um, so right from the get-go of my, what was then a LLB, that you call a JD now, yeah. um, I was destined or I, I wanted to go on and, and do graduate work and eventually get a PhD and then teach teach law. Okay. It seemed like a good field for all sorts of reasons. A, I was interested in the constitutional aspect of things, but also um, you know, law schools had money and they were hiring and uh, unlike today, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it was it was easier to get a job back then and um, it, it Intellectually, it's a fascinating area, and okay. so uh, or discipline. So I I pursued it, and here I am. I never really, I never went to law school to practice law. Oddly enough, did did you fall in love with law school when you were there? The student's experience, not not as an academic later on, but as a student, did you love law school? I loved law. Okay, I loved law from early on. I loved the study of law. I still do with. Uh, passion. It's just a, I think it's just a fascinating, um, engaging, uh, discipline. Um, and, I, and yeah, so I fell in love with, with the law and the study of law, um, almost from day one there. Muck and I both come from science backgrounds. And what mm -hmm. I found personally was that there was, there were way fewer opportunities to engage interpersonally in science than there are in the law school. Uh, there's ample opportunity to do group projects here. Mm -hmm. um, was that a part of it at all for you? Like, did you did you notice that coming from physics, where I imagine you were just grinding hours on end on your own? Yeah. Uh, that at law school you got to engage more with peers about subject matter which you found more interesting. Or so I think that's true. But uh, if, truth is, I'm I'm a rather solitary soul. <laughs> I'm a, I'm okay. A, a, I'm very introverted and I, I like my own company. So I spent a lot of time on my own <laughs> uh, studying law as opposed to studying yeah. physics. So although the, the social interactions and the, the conversation was a plus, it wasn't uh, a big draw for me. Did you think the academic rigor that you developed doing physics translated well to law? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, uh, the, in my experience, students coming from science often feel a little bit like fish out of water when they arrive at law school. Yeah. Because if for no other reason they haven't read more than five pages at a time <laughs> in, in any one sitting. That's a big thing. <laughs> and Or written anything, yeah. any prose of any length. Um, but I actually think they're extremely well suited for, yeah. uh, for the study of law because of the, the rigor that you're taught in uh, in your science studies, and the same the same with philosophy yeah. degrees. Yeah, people coming coming to law from philosophy or from the sciences have that um, appreciation for the importance of precision. Yeah, in expression, f 
they understand the idea of logic and they understand the idea of logical reasoning, whether it's inductive or deductive and the care that it requires and the rigor, uh, the, the bonus and the, the kind of power of the rigor of, of logical reasoning and good conceptual analysis. All of that is the stuff of science and philosophy training. Yeah. So um, the writing too is, is, <laughs> Are, did you have to do any writing in physics or probably not at all almost? Well, you know, not in physics per se. No, I don't think in any of the physics courses you, you wrote, as, as far as I can call, recall, you wrote essays. Yeah. So you had little exposure to writing in your undergrad then? I took I took some philosophy courses in okay. my undergrad. Um, yeah. I think I've got tracks. writing. I, I've always enjoyed writing and I, I think I have a, a capacity for writing and I have since I was a kid. I think it may be somewhat genetic or something. My yeah. parents are both <laughs> excellent writers. My sister is a professional writer. So I, I think it's, it's somewhat somewhere in my blood. I had, I had the same experience. I took first year European history when I was at Western. Right. I thought it would be like, uh, that would be cool to learn a little bit about history. I walk in and it's a required course for international relations, poli sci, right. history, those disciplines. And they're looking at me like, you're in med sci. At the time, I was in med sci. They're like, you're in medical science. What are you doing here? You should drop this course. It's a full year credit with an essay component, which is like three essays. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to stick around. I like this. <laughs> Ended up doing very well. So yeah. I think like, even though, I mean, there's a big divide between being in the, in like the, the arts and humanities disciplines and being in the pure sciences. Um, but I think some people kind of are on the edge where they're just interested and curious. And it's kind of nice in our education system to be able to take an elective course and see the other side and yep. kind of get a little bit of that skill under yep. your belt. Because yep. I think like to this day in law school, the reason why I'm a decent writer, half half decent writer is because of those kinds of experiences, not the sciences. Not the sciences per se. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did Were you a big reader and writer prior to university? Like, is that... Yeah, but for me, reading has never been an enjoyable yeah. um, like activity in and of itself. It's always to an end. <laughs> so I hardly read fiction. To this day, I only read nonfiction, really. And right. it's because I want to learn, which is what the enjoyable aspect of it is. But I don't yeah. like the act of reading. Right. So like, if, if you give me an opportunity to watch a video or a documentary, I'll take that over reading any day of the week. Yeah, How about yourself? Exactly the same. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't read uh, fiction almost at all anymore it's it's all nonfiction. yeah do you ever um have you ever tried audiobooks or anything like that i i, I used to listen to a lot of audiobooks now they it's been supplanted by podcasts yeah yeah I listen to a lot <laughs> there's of just podcasts. so many podcasts yeah. out there that are, that are excellent <laughs> plus and, one yeah. <laughs> yeah, plus one now yeah do you yeah. still engage at all with physics i'll move on but it, i find it interesting because it's it's so different yeah. Um, even though it obviously offers some benefits to law, but do you still engage at all with math and physics, or just in a, just as a layperson now? And I, I sometimes find my, I, I have, as you could probably tell, like I have a, a, I don't, it's not a regret, but I do wonder if if my younger self made the right decision in leaving physics, um, because there's such beauty in that in in the study of physics. I always just loved it. It was just so. Uh, I was so passionate yeah. about it. Um, yeah. And the reasons I didn't pursue it were several, but, uh, and so now I, I follow it uh, just in the sense that I listen to, you know, people like Sean Carroll, who's a 
a theoretical physicist, ah. uh, Johns Hopkins, who has a a podcast uh, that's excellent. <laughs> that's and awesome. He he listens. He speaks to lots of physicists. And yeah, there's a there's a niche but growing category. There's um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, yep. Michio Kaku, yep. a few others that. I've uh, encountered there. I, I think people, there's something about physics and, and understanding the fundamentals of reality and what we've discovered about the curious, weird uh, truth about our universe. Yeah, which is crazier than just, fiction. Yeah, which is crazier than fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, Carol's, one of Carol's books, I think is called Preposterous Universe. <laughs> a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful phrase. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we have something innate in us that, that wants to know and is curious about these things. So, yeah. And I think sounds like you also appreciated the uh, the black and whiteness of it. Like there are no appeal court decisions that you don't oh like, like in physics. <laughs> this is the thing. There's uh physics is you know in a way it's really easy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, put me in this in social sciences and or in a discipline like law where there's just gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's it's all gray. There's you know rarely an absolutely right answer, and yeah. and it, it can be extraordinarily frustrating to a science-minded uh, person. I I make uh, a lot of my effort and scholarship in law is is a kind of um, maybe a wrong-headed attempt to c create something scientifically rigorous yeah. out of out of the unscientific material of law yeah. um, so I, as you know from being in my class in contracts i do tend to try i try to find the basic principles of of a given area like yeah. contract law and teach and understand an area and i try to i try to find the sort of atomic units or basic fundamental principles in a given area and try to teach the teach my students to understand an area from those basic fundamentals so everything or a great deal of of the law of contract can be derived from certain more certain fundamental rules um and, and if you and so that's a very scientific way of approaching a, a discipline like law yeah um but it works to a large extent um you're never going to get the kind of rigor you get in science but you can avoid the temptation of law students that I find very frustrating, and I try to disabuse them of it right away. Which is, it's not a, 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 it's not memorizing. Mm. If if you're out, if you're engaging in a course by trying to memorize a bunch of ratios or rules or principles, you're not going to do as well as you could, and you're not going to be thinking like a lawyer. You should be um, understanding the, the the rudiments, the purposes, the functions of a given area of law, and from those basic functions and rules and purposes, you should be able to derive ten times more than those. Um, and, and so, you know, don't don't memorize the rule in folks and beer, or you know, the principle that you know, uh, payment of a lesser sum in in exchange for. Uh, for the release of a larger debt uh, isn't binding. You can remember that rule if you wish. Yeah, but it's not. It's not going to help much. In a, it doesn't represent a true understanding because that rule is just a derivation of the principle of consideration. It's mm -hmm. just a that that fundamental idea of contract law uh, that contract is a an exchange of things of value. From that principle, you can derive folks and beer. Yeah, uh, and so I I try to uh, instill in my students a sense that. Uh, understanding an area of law isn't just memory work. 
there's some memory work, but I have a terrible memory. And, and as you said, I think in your first podcast, um, you, you know, you're going to forget your, the cases. Yeah. You're going to forget them as soon as you finish your exam in most cases. Yeah. <laughs> um, most of them. Some stand out. Some, but. some are going to stand out for sure <clears throat> yeah. and they'll be with you forever. But the, the bulk of them, I suggest to you, will, will after a couple of years just fade into memory. Yeah. But what you'll have is, is the rudiments, the fundamentals of the, of the area in question. And you'll be able to, um, to work through a problem in contract or property or tort or whatever without necessarily remembering exactly the cases that you learned yeah. in first year. Okay. Yeah. So, so you do your undergrad in physics, you go, you get your law degree, you enjoy that. <clears throat> Are you thinking about employment at this point? Like you mentioned, you didn't want to be a, a, a practitioner of law, but did, did any thought of working immediately after the conclusion of your law degree, I mean, come across your, sure. your mind or? Well, I, w I wanted to teach law. Okay. So I, I wanted to be a law professor. Okay. And that, that desire uh, congealed and crystallized in first year. Okay. Um, the beauty of law school was if I didn't get a law teaching job, I could always be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And really that wasn't such a bad idea. And, and. It's uh, a great fallback. It's yeah. a great fallback. <laughs> and, and I, I, I still, you know, I do, I do a little bit of consulting and uh, I admire the uh, good practitioners of law a great deal. And I saw my dad, as I was growing up, I saw my dad practicing law and it wasn't at all a bad fallback, um, but I really wanted to teach something. And so I was in law school, so I'll teach law. Um, and so I, I spent my law school years uh, trying to get the best grades I could and trying to you know, put together some writing samples and all the while knowing I was going to end up doing a master's and then a doctorate at some point. So, so take us to, to Australia where you, you do philosophy. How, how do you sort of shift from, again, from, from one field to another and yeah, arguably as interesting, why, why Australia? Right. So my, my path to philosophy was really through law so I, I, there's a longer and shorter version. Let me give you somewhere in between. The I, I um, during my law school, in in law school, I was interested still in federalism and the constitution, that which was part of what drew me there. And so I did a lot of courses in in constitutional law and federalism, and and then for reasons that are kind of lost in the mists of history right now, I, I became interested in aspects of political theory in and around federalism. So I was interested okay. in comparative federalism, Australian-Canadian federalism comparisons, and with the very idea of a federal compact, as it's sometimes called, which is a kind of contract amongst the federal party, the, fe the federal entities. Okay. And, um, and that led me, in turn, to the study of the social contract, the the political theory and political mm. philosophy idea of the social contract, you know, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Kant, and those folks, and and that so that that's where I I focused my energies in some of my independent research projects at Osgood, and then at U of T when I was doing my Master of Laws, my my LLM. I honed in on uh, on the social contract through the lens of looking at a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher named George Grant. 
And I wrote my LLM thesis on George Grant, who was critical of social contract ideas. All right. If you're with me so far, then I, uh, in the study of the social contract, which is the, this notion of a kind of um, political authority is based on the assent of the, uh, of those obliged, of, mm-hmm. of the citizenry, um, I became interested in the normative power of consent. So what is it, what is it to say somebody is bound because they've consented to another's rules or authority? And, in, you know, what is it to make a promise and be bound by? Ah. And, and so that, that then opened up a literature. I'm a little bit like you, Muck, in, in the conversation before the, uh, the pod we started to record. You were uh, telling us about your passion for um, various somewhat esoteric uh, yeah. uh, hobbies and, and that lead you down these rabbit holes and, and you, you come hell or high water, you're going to understand something and follow it to its, its logical conclusion and understand there everything there is to know about bolt. What was it? Bolt. Uh, Electroplating. No, no. The, uh, the, the tumbler? Tumbler. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a tool to clean bolts and other rusty items, usually from a car, but other things. <laughs> Which is the subject of another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Next episode, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> um, so similar to, to you, I, I, I then opened up this, I opened up this uh, uh, hatch in, uh, about the, you know, the philosophy of promising. I wanted to know everything there was yeah. to know about what moral philosophers and philosophers of language has, ha- had had to say about this weird idea of making a promise and being bound by it. Yeah. And, and so that, that was driven initially by my interest in federalism, oddly enough. And then I, I dived into that hole, and it's a massive literature on promising, as it turns out. And it, it spans moral philosophy, political philosophy, philosophy of language, and legal philosophy. And so into it I went. <laughs> and um, initially I started my PhD at the University of Toronto in law, looking at the obligation of promises with a view to eventually turning it back to law and looking at the obligation of promises in law. Mm-hmm. But it became very clear that what I was interested in or what I needed to get under my belt was the philosophical literature. And so I was moving to Australia because I got a job there. Okay. okay. <laughs> so uh, I applied for a job at the University of Queensland in Brisbane in 1990, late 1996 or early 1997, I applied for it. And uh, they flew me down, which would have been good enough. I didn't, didn't care if I got the job. They flew me down for an interview. And uh, never forget that. It was so cool. Like, just a young guy. They flew me down to Brisbane. They put me up in this lovely hotel and had this amazing steak dinner. And it was all paid for. Can I ask how old you are at this point? Oh, you can ask, but I can't remember. Uh, oh, so 1997, I would have been like uh, 30. Okay. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have the interview, and then I come back home, and late one night, because apparently they don't understand the time difference, I, it was like 2.30 <laughs> in the morning, I got a call from the, they call them the head of school there, not the dean, um, giving me, you know, offering me the yeah. job. So off I went to to do my, you know, have my first teaching gig uh-huh. at the University of Queensland, having finished my master's and only just started a PhD at U of T in law. 
Okay. I get to Australia. We we settle. I settle in Brisbane, and then it becomes pretty clear that I really need to be in a philosophy department um, because the stuff I'm reading is all philosophy. And so, since I was already so far from Toronto at that point, I just switched and I I enrolled in a PhD in philosophy. At so you were University teaching City. and studying at the same time. Yes, and the, okay. so the, the PhD took a long time. So were you <laughs> teaching law? I was teaching law at UQ, okay. the University of Queensland. Yeah. So okay. because you were going anyways, were you half ready to establish yourself there? Um, going anyways where? to Australia. So, you were you to were going to go to work there. Oh, yes, I was. So, um, yeah, I I went down. My my then wife and I moved to Australia in '97. Um, I didn't. We I, we I don't think we were certain whether I would. You stay always or thought you'd stay. come back, or I I don't know. I I think we it was up in the air to okay. see how it went. We stayed three years. Uh-huh. Um, we had a child down there. Our first. Uh, child or our daughter Charlotte was born in Brisbane and um and then it became clear you know just how far it is from everything from yeah, family yeah. that's what i tell people when they say they want to move down there yeah 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 it's it's a lovely i mean i loved australia i loved the university it's, of queensland it seems it's, beautiful yeah it's it's beautiful the people are funny and laid back and yeah. i just had such a great time there but to have parents and aunts and uncles and and whatever come out and visit it was just it's prohibitive back back then was it hard to get stuff there like like niche products or hobbies, that kind of stuff. I don't remember that being an issue. Okay. No, it's a, it was all. It was, we're only talking 1997. <laughs> <laughs> Dark ages. I just, when was Amazon, the industrial right? revolution? <laughs> I guess it was before Amazon. Like I just, I just assumed things would be more expensive to ship when it's that far. But I guess yeah, when you're a, sending container ships, it doesn't. Yeah, all, all seven of, instead yeah. of one day shipping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't overnight anything from the U.S. I can no. probably guarantee you that. I always assumed it must be a compelling place to live because I I have a cousin who who went down there for what was supposed to be a short time and never came home. Right. Yeah. So that happens a lot. Yeah. It does uh, happen a lot with friends, Australia. Friends yeah. have done that of mine. Yeah. Others are considering it as we speak. It's uh <laughs> it's, a, it's an attractive place to live. The weather is people go down there and then they come they come back with a partner. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and the weather was amazing. I mean it was a bit hot, hot. and humid, but I could I could live hot and humid all, Isn't all the time. Everything that crawls trying to kill you. Yeah, there? there's that too. The cockroaches were like they'd fly through the windows. I didn't know uh, that in Queensland they'd bat you in the head. It was like <laughs> It was like a baseball hitting you in the head. We we went and got screens made for our. We lived in this house that they called them Queenslanders because they were kind of up on stilts uh-huh. um, to get uh, air movement around it because it was so hot. And we 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 had somebody make us screens, even though it was sort of a cultural. Nobody had screens. <laughs> Why these cockroaches would come through and bat you in the head, and it was just it was horrific. The snakes too. I and mean the snakes. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. You Pros and cons, eh? Well, you hear the horror stories. They they end up in your house. <laughs> yeah. That's, they, have, they have everything. They have alligators, I think, or something croc- like that. Yeah, crocodiles. crocodiles. Yeah, crocodiles. Yeah. But it, it was it was a lot of fun. And the people were were great and funny and like a kind of emblematic of of uh, of, the, of Queensland uh laid back life is when I got into my first classroom, the very first day I taught a course at UQ, I was teaching Australian labor law, which is a story in itself. I still cannot believe that that's the first course I ever taught, Australian labor law. But there I was, nervous, my first class ever anywhere, well, yeah. in, in, in a law school. 
And I got a question about two-thirds of the way through the class. Finally, somebody put up their hand. Honest to God. <laughs> the very first question I ever got from a student anywhere, this guy puts up his hand. I say, okay, what is it? Um, how much can you bench? <laughs> <laughs> I had the exact same first thought, I won't lie. Really? I did. Yeah, I would never have asked, but I did. So we'll get there later, been, but... <laughs> you must have been a pretty buff guy back then. I was, yeah, then I, then I was uh, more fit than I am now, probably 50 pounds less heavy, and yeah. yeah so. my, first, yeah. my first thought when I sat in your contracts class was, surely this man has seen pumping iron, uh, <laughs> and I don't know if it changed your life as much as it did mine, but... I knew, I was like, we might have something in common here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I did. I did have the first. Actually, it wasn't even, it was shared by by a group of us. So it, it, might, it might be more people than you think. <laughs> I was not in on the secret. <laughs> did, did you answer the question? You know, I tried, I, I was nonplussed. I was completely taken aback by the question. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a I, nice layup though. It's a, it, it eases you into it for sure. <laughs> it didn't though. It was so, it was disarming. It was like... Uh, how the hell am I going to, what am I, I, I was nervous <laughs> about answering some substantive question on yeah. Australian labor law that I wouldn't be able to yeah. answer. Yeah. So I don't, I wish I'd just not missed a beat and said, you know, 320 or something, yeah. whatever mm -hmm. the number was. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think I answered it. I think I flummoxed my <laughs> way through. It's so fast. None of your business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, so did you find that you were inter like incorporating a lot of Canadian common law into your Australian classes? And I imagine it, it sort of fits well, but did they ever, if that was the case, did they ever sort of wonder why, why you weren't focusing more on Australian cases? <laughs> no. Or were you pretty up to speed with, with the Australian common law by that point? Oh, well, I had to be, right? Okay. I mean, it was, uh, so especially in labor law, which shares very little in common with Canadian labor law. In fact, it's, it has a different title down there. I was asked, I remember this conversation at 2.30 in the morning with the head of school from UQ. And he says, we'd like to hire you. I said, great. And he said, uh, how do you feel about teaching? How do you, <laughs> how do you feel about teaching industrial law? <laughs> that's, that's what he asked me. And I, I was like, what? <laughs> I pictured big machines. Let me get back to you on I've, that. I've never what heard that. that. What's the right? law governing <laughs> so uh, I looked it up <laughs> and it turns out to be their name for labor law, or at least in the day it was. Okay. So, um, so yeah, that I had to be up to speed on the Australian law. Now contract law, which I was also asked to teach, thank goodness. Um, Australian contract law and Canadian contract law, very, very similar. Oh. So I just plugged in Australian cases, but the, the law is almost identical. Yeah, so you just go for the rule and then find which yeah. case. Okay. Yeah, find the right case. Did, I, did, I did put some Canadian cases in there because there are some good Canadian cases. Did they give you a, a good amount of time to prepare for Australia or was it a pretty quick turnaround from Toronto? So, no, it was pretty quick. I think I had like three months to pack up and move and get ready to teach um, after I'd been hired. And so that was a long... So you must have been a pretty avid reader. Well, I, by I, that point, at I, least. I remember going up to my then wife's parents' cottage, and I think I spent a week or ten days one day with or one in during that period with a pile of Australian law books. Yeah, mainly labor law or industrial law. <laughs> well, you have to. <laughs> at that point. And I just yeah, I would yeah. I just read them all day long every day. And, uh, and even at that yeah. though, first your your first run through, you you still must have been terrified to. I was to teach about something you you 
had basically just been introduced to yourself. Yeah, the labor law was was tricky. I'm not quite sure why I said yes, other than, <laughs> oh my God, you're giving me a job. I'll do whatever you need. Have you right. have you left industrial law in the past, or do you still uh, do you still stay current with it? Oh no, I I've, I've I left it. I left okay. it in my dust. <laughs> yes. It's it's interesting though because you go from Canada to Australia to tea. What's the biggest differences that you noticed? like almost immediately when you started teaching there? In term, okay, so I think at, at a broad level, one thing that struck me very much about the Australian legal education system, at least in the 90s and early aughts, uh, and I don't know if it's still the same, I think it probably is, is it's a heavily black letter focus. So they are very doctrinal in their mm. approach. They had very little time, at least at the University of Queensland in the day that I was there, at the time I was there, for theoretical approaches. Uh, so, you know, even legal philosophy wasn't uh, particularly, um, you know, I, I don't think people admired that field that much, put it that way. Um, and, and the approach to every area of law was rather scientific, okay. <laughs> rather black letter. Um, so there were, and there would very, there would be very few courses on offer with the title law and, you know, okay. there would be no law and sexuality or law and gender or anything like that or okay. law and philosophy, none of that. Okay. Um, it was, well, yeah. How, what, go so, ahead. I was just going to say, how about the, their course? Did you, did you find that the courts mirrored that where they were more like text of the law and not proposive, not? Um, to, to a certain lesser, less so than, than I'm describing their education okay. system. Um, the Australian courts in my experience were excellent. The Australian, Australian high court, the high court of Australia is yeah. uh, just a superb, uh, group of jurists. Like okay. the, I, uh, I don't know if I rank my the, my favorite courts <laughs> in the world. Uh, I think the English Court of Appeal is comes out on top, and then uh, the High Court of Australia is a close second, followed by the House of Lords and the Supreme Court in the UK. Do you still have colleagues in Australia who who you have any relationship with, or yeah, less uh, the, the the ties have uh, sort of faded over the years. Naturally, yeah, yeah. I do I do keep in touch with a couple of people down there. Um, but again, it's just so far and I yeah. haven't been down in years. Would you ever go back? I would love to go back and visit or give a talk. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's just a matter of finding the time because you really need like two weeks to make, yeah, a, make at a least, decent Especially yeah. with the yeah. jet lag. With the jet lag. Yeah. I know. I know all about that. Yeah. How, uh, so, so how did you make your way back to Toronto after the three year stint? Via Edmonton. Okay. So, uh, we, we decided Suzanne and I, my then wife, wanted to uh, come back. And so I started to make applications to, you know, put in applications to teach in Canada. And the first place I got hired was was at the University of Alberta. In fact, I, I had an offer simultaneously, simultaneously at um, Dalhousie. But I decided on on Edmonton and spent, so I spent two years there, which were excellent. I, I love U of A. I loved Edmonton. Okay. Maybe because I didn't expect anything of it. Yeah. Um, and there were no jobs in, in Ontario at the time. Mm -hmm. So that was just a, the first step. And then I stayed a couple of years and then got the job at Queens. And here I've been ever since. Yeah. Did, did Do you travel throughout Canada still like with work or or do you find you're pretty localized now? Um, you know, I go to conferences in, at various places, but uh, stick you know, Kingston is yeah, Kingston is home, and I spend most of my time here. You you referenced the consulting. Tell us a little bit about sort of the opportunities outside of academia that that you, I mean, 
if you can give specifics, great, but just generally what what opportunities there are for professors outside of of teaching and and research it's it's really varied and uh depends on the discipline and the prof so i have colleagues uh other profs who practice uh they will engage in uh you know they'll they'll take cases and yeah yeah they um they litigate and um and then lots of us um even if we don't litigate we will do consulting work so it could be a lawyer in a firm or a, uh, a firm getting in touch saying, you know, we've got this case and we're, we need some expertise. We need some advice or a strategy, some assistance with a strategy. Uh, here's the problem. Can you help us with it? Um, so I've done some of that, uh, which is delightful work. I wish I had yeah. more of it. It's, uh, I'm, it's not something you can sort of go out and get. You, yeah. you get known in the field, and then people get in touch with you. I think is is mainly the thing. Some of our, some of my colleagues, you know, work as arbitrators. That's another mm -hmm. um, possibility. Doing, you know, lots of people do. You know, they contribute to government commissions and law reform agencies and things like that. So, so you've had a very adventurous, very successful career. Nobody gets. It's not to, over yet. Well, no, no. To this point, to this point. Right. Um, are there are there mentors like along the way who who you credit with a lot of your success? And obviously, you you switch between three relatively different areas of study. Yeah. In each one, did you have like a a mentor or a role model, even, or or did you find like you said you sort of just stuck to the books on your own and and pursued natural interests of of yours i think i think more the latter alex I, i'm uh um i had i had some people in, in at each stage that helped me along the way and guided me um yeah. but i don't really think and i feel kind of unfortunate in this regard. i don't <laughs> feel i don't feel like i had any real true mentors coming up as it were yeah. i have more people who i'd call mentors today than i did back then um Certainly at Osgood, you know, I think in some ways I'm not, I'm not even sure I'd, I'd have gotten my first teaching job if it wasn't for the help of a couple of professors and, and one in particular, Bruce Ryder, who, who's a constitutional law and torts law professor. I've lost touch with Bruce over the years, but boy, he was supportive um, of my pursuit of academe back then. And that just made a world of difference to have somebody who I admired so much on, in my yeah. corner. Um, I'm just wondering, you did mention that for somebody wanting to pursue a career in teaching in academia, you said that earlier, like when you were pursuing it, it was easier and there were more jobs, more funding, et cetera. For somebody like in our class or our generation, would you say that it's much more difficult? And what are some ideas and approaches that one can take to make, make it easier and set themselves up for success if that's good. what they want? Yeah, good question. I, I don't know that I would say it's actually harder today than it was back then. It, in some ways it is, at least in the following way. You're not going to really get much of a look today um, by a law school if you don't have, uh, at least under your belt, the first couple of years of a PhD and ideally having finished your, your PhD or your doctorate, like whatever, if it's an SJD or a JSD or a PhD or whatever they're called, they're, they're all, they go by different yeah. names or a DPhil. Um, whereas back when I was hired and you'll notice colleagues here and at other law schools, some of them have LLMs, but no, no doctorate. Yeah. Um, that's kind of not 
really a plausible alternative anymore. So you really do have to pursue the the, PhD. the, the doctorate. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of setting yourself up, it's it's as simple and as hard as uh, uh, um, uh, doing very well in law school. Uh, right, getting the best possible grades you can and developing an interest in a particular area of law that you want to specialize in. And that doesn't mean right away. It doesn't even mean, um, it really doesn't even mean by the end of your JD, but certainly by the time you start your master's, you have to have decided on an area that you want to dig into deeply uh, and and learn everything there is to learn about um, and have that kind of drive and passion uh, that you have for tumblers <laughs> um, for for a given area of law, would would you encourage someone wanting to pursue academia to to align with a mentor, uh, someone in the profession already, or do so, you think it's it's yes. sort of a so not necessarily aligning with a mentor? I mean, I I think this is good general advice for students: is get to know a professor or two quite well, if you can. Um, somebody whose class maybe you enjoyed, or you can pretend that you enjoyed. <laughs> and um and you know uh, approach them and get to know them a bit by asking them questions during their office hours or or whatever yeah. and um show show that you've got an interest in the field and maybe ask them a bit about their work and so they know you from adam as it were and and um and are willing for example to write you a reference letter when you need one and reference letters by professors who know you a bit more than just your transcript and your CV yeah. uh, are gold. So, and that so that's not just for pursuing academe, but also uh, pursuing uh, a practice career. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe particularly in academe, having somebody having an academic or professor being able to vouch for you and your your interest and passion for a subject is is valuable. I think even if you go outside of law later down the line. Having people that are in prestigious and, yeah. and competent positions say that you're, you know, your stuff and you're a good person and you're trustworthy is just like transferable across the board. I would yeah. Say. So don't yeah. don't be shy about and that's, to know people. And that's what we tried wrong. to say in the in the earlier yeah, podcast is um is like don't be shy, do not be afraid. Most professors are wonderful human beings. You don't get there by accident. We have good institutions that select for these things, right? And so, like, you're just doing yourself a disservice if you think you're not good enough to have a conversation. Like, I mean, you probably know a lot more than you think you do because you've done at least a few months of law school. You can at least have somewhat of an educated discussion on a topic. So, yeah, you don't have to come into the professor's office um, pur purporting to be an expert in the area <laughs> yeah. or, or knowing lots. You, you <laughs> exactly. can be asking questions. You don't know lots. You're you're a student. Yeah, um, um, you're there to learn. And so, if you show an interest in what the professor is studying, for example, or or uh, want to dig a bit deeper into a case that he or she or they talked about that day, then show up in the office and talk about it, or yeah. write them an email that shows that you've thought about something. I can't tell you how much a diff how I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get 55 emails after this, but um, <laughs> how how uh, what's the word um, uh, kind of effective or uh, impactful it is to get a, a carefully drafted, thoughtful email from a student who says, you know, in class today you said X. I've been thinking about it. First of all, that's like, oh my God. 
Well, it's like, on more. It's more than one occasion last year in in contracts that you you shared those emails with the yes. class. Even yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll sometimes put them up or I'll send them. I'll forward them around. That's right. Yeah. Um. I've been thinking about what you said. Is just like those are golden words. Yeah, there, professor. Really? <laughs> okay. So my my life is not a waste after all. Oh no. Uh, we thought about what you said all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all I thought about. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I think our first year contracts taught by you is is very arduous it's very theoretical but i think if you survive and you put in your best work i think it sets it up it sets everything up for success because you see contract law show up in in practice you see it in other courses we saw it in property too and if you don't know the basic principles well enough you just get lost and so i was so grateful when i was at my firm for how consistently arduous your class was, even though at the time I was like, can we just get the rule? But, <laughs> but the fact you and that everybody else, yeah, but <laughs> in the that fact particular that, year, that the analysis was a big part of the class and that you would point out inaccuracies and inconsistencies and try to reconcile cases. Like at the time, yeah, we had a lot of other work to do. So it was a little bit of a, of like a lot at the at the time, right. but when I was in practice, it was like I understand exactly what we're after here—the principle, the, the basic idea here—and this decision or this case is not going to win on this principle, yeah. even though on its face you can pull a case from 1930 that says that it's on all fours, right. but it's not—it's not the right approach. It's not the right idea here, and I think I've heard from people at work too that Queens grads, especially those taught by you. Um, have that up their sleeve. Well, that is very kind of you to say. Yeah, and no, uh, I didn't genuine. pay him anything for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Muck. That that's very meaningful. And and uh, yeah, I mean, because you you really just expressed in a, 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 through what you've just said, um, kind of my approach to to legal education. Yeah, which is yeah, the bar is high. It's I, I try to be challenging because the law is challenging to understand it well. Yeah. It's challenging, but there's a payoff. There's a big payoff. Yeah. Speak speak a little bit to the the most gratifying and and challenging parts about being a professor. Oh, um, you know, it's students like you guys. Honestly, uh, the biggest the 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 okay. So starting that is the rewards, not the challenges. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> um, Alex, you troublemaker. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so we've got challenges and we've got rewards. Um. The challenges are many. Uh, teaching, I find teaching hard, and you're thrown into it. You know, professors, by and large, we don't have any training in teaching. Yeah, we're experts in a field. Yeah, and then we're told to come and teach industrial law. Yeah, <laughs> and hey, I don't, uh, I don't know how to. I don't. I, I didn't go to teachers' college or anything like it. Yeah. Um. So there's a kind of assumption which I don't think always holds that. Uh, being expert in an area translates in being able to convey clearly what the area says and what the contents of that area are. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a learning curve. Um, to some, I think it comes more naturally than to to others. To me, it's not the the part I find most rewarding about teaching is also part of what perhaps makes me an effective teacher to the extent I am. And that is a passion. So I, I love the stuff I'm teaching. I love 
pick me an area of law and ask me to teach it. I'll learn it yeah. and I'll teach it and it, it'll be interesting. It's, it's just, there's so much of interest out there. And, and I try to convey that to my students. It's just how um, interested I am in, in the cases we're studying. I'm not just up here because I'm getting paid to, I, I do it for free. Don't tell my, Dean, <laughs> uh, except except during exam time, <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll need payment. But um, so so passion for the material, which I think is contagious. Yeah. Uh, um, but there are it's it's challenging too. Um, it's challenging to uh, reach everybody in that class. So if I've got seventy people in the class, they've all got different backgrounds and different learning styles, and I have to somehow reach as many of them as I can as, as effectively as I can. And that's, uh, that's not always easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, and one's approach is, it tends to attract or appeal to certain minds and not so much to others, which is fine. And that's just the way it is. And then you choose the professors that you're going to take courses with in, in, in future years or in future semesters. Pub public speaking is obviously a huge part of teaching. Um, is it something you were always comfortable with or is oh God, it something no, you, I, I hated okay. it. Uh, no, I, I, uh, and I still, I mean, I, if I'm, if I'm well prepared, I can do a toast or something. But, uh, uh, Speech. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not, a, I, don't, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm a pub, a good public speaker, um, per se. It's, I don't see myself as giving a speech. It's, it's just, I'm, I'm trying to convey something that I love thinking about and trying to, uh, and, and trying to capture it as clearly as I can and, uh, uh, and get students to, uh, you know, get the lights to light up, uh, in the students' faces. Yeah. And, and that's one of the most rewarding things. I can't even, it's hard to convey how it feels, but for me anyway, when you're in front of a class and you're, trying to explain a case or a concept that you know is challenging and that probably most students haven't fully got their head around from just the reading. And then you, you start to see the eyes, the, the, there's a change in the eyes, there's a change in body posture when people start to get it. And, and there's a sense in the room, even if it's not spoken, that there's an understanding happening here. Mm -hmm. And boy, that's powerful. Yeah. And then when the questions start that indicate that they've got part of it, but maybe not, maybe not all of it, but they're, they're interested in following it up. I just, it's just, uh, it's extremely powerful. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the point you made about how willing and eager profs are to engage with students, um, I'm a, it's part of why I was so happy to see you come in with the queen shirt on the queen's merch. I'm a huge proponent for advocate for, for the, the culture at Queens in particular. Um, we're obviously very familiar with, with it from the student side. Yeah. Would you say it's, it's similar, uh, among the, the staff, the faculty of, yeah. of Queens? Yeah. I don't want to sound like a, a shill for Queens or anything, <laughs> but boy, it really is like, I've been at a couple of other law schools and I've visited it at more than that. Um, and I've never been at a place I've felt more um, supported yeah. um, by, by colleagues. Yeah. Uh, so the, the student atmosphere of mutual support really, it's also there in the, at the faculty level. There's, there's differences and we have political opinions and there's, it, it, there's some political uh, divisions, I yeah. suppose, but they don't interfere with collegiality. Um, 
and so and I've got friends and mentors on faculty uh, who are closer in a way than than any other faculty members I've ever associated with. It's just a wonderfully supportive place to be. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear yeah. because I think that also is like a feedback loop where yeah. if you have that in the faculty, then that's encouraged on the student side. And I think so. Yeah. And it it that's a good point, Muck. So I I feel it in the classroom. Yeah, I feel it in my first year classes in particular, when the the, the students are together and before the class starts, you know, to begin the very beginning of the year, it's very quiet. Yeah, and then it starts to get louder and louder and louder, and sort of by I don't know November, it's kind of deafening at yeah. the beginning of a class, which is just delightful. Like these people, they're all they're all getting along, they all know each other, and they're they. They're supporting each other, and yeah. uh, so that that feeds back. I I look very fondly back on the pictures, maybe fifty years ago of of law schools, where you you see these pictures of students sitting on the desks, engaging. They're so engaged with each other and the professor that it's you're almost building on ideas as you go. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's arguably one of the downsides of everyone having a computer that they need to type as fast as they can on. Yeah, it it sort of eliminates that. But but you're absolutely right. At, as the year goes on, the the classes are bustling. Yeah, um, which is super exciting. It's it's it makes going to class a lot more fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and so I, let me stop you there because that computer that you have in front of you that you're typing as fast as you can on. Um, was it somebody, one of you in the very first episode that I listened to mm -hmm. um, mentioned that, you know, you started out typing or, or taping, yeah, taking, you know, trying to take verbatim notes of yeah. what the prof was saying. And, and you kind of wised up that maybe that wasn't the best way to go about it, or at it's least you're up, up or you're. I've never been a good note taker. Right. Like even at work, I, yeah. I told people like, listen, you're going to bring me to an examination. I'm going to do my best. I, I did pretty good notes for, for, for that kind of stuff, but like I was killing myself. Yeah. I've never, I like being present in the room. I That's like it. active listening. Um, I like asking questions. I ask too many questions. Um, you had to cut me off a couple of times. <laughs> Who did? Um, when we were in our contract class, because I didn't ever cut you off. Did I? <laughs> uh, because I was, um, I, like, I try to make sure I look for other people who have questions if I've asked a couple okay, already, right. but I missed one, I think. Anyway, um, water under the bridge, <laughs> 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 but, um, but yeah, I, 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 I still can't do it. Like I go, I write down the most important things, yeah. but I usually ask a friend for their notes or I'll add to an outline if I get one from a previous year or something, Good, because then I'm then I'm sitting there learning stuff for the first time that I didn't learn from you That's because, right. because I'm in, not listening, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I just can't either do one or the other. I can't write everything you say down Nobody and process can. it. It can't be done, right? Yeah. And that's why you, it, it is so important. I, I need to tell my first-year students this this year um, as well. Just if you're, if you're spending all your time writing, trying to get every word down, that's completely, that's a waste of your time. Yeah. Uh, you're not, what I'm saying, if I'm adding any value to your legal education, and I hope I am, then what I'm saying is kind of at least to some extent challenging. Yeah. It, it requires thought. Otherwise, why am I here? Yeah. So, um, so don't just write down, be here, pre be present, listen, think, and, and, and then, and take down the big points, if yeah. you will, maybe flesh it out or, f uh, fill out the details later with somebody else's notes or go home that, uh, that evening while it's still relatively fresh and, and fill in the gaps yeah. as best you can. And it's hard advice because we're so kind of hardwired to, to just write. Yeah. Uh, somebody's saying something, I, I don't want to miss anything. Well, it's also 
this is my personal opinion, but it really is you're, you're testing thoughts and ideas. You're not testing pure content. You're not asking people to regurgitate like yeah. exactly what happened. And I don't think a lot of 1Ls will understand that until we, after the midterm. We spoke about it a bit on the first podcast too, but it's profs, especially in law school, aren't really out to get you. Like it is meat and potatoes that you're being yeah. tested on. Yeah. You know, it's not the the obscure one case that they told you to read on your own, you know, like <laughs> it's not really gotcha testing, I don't think at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Par- part of for me, what made your class so engaging was that you would bring in anecdotes sort of from your personal life. And I think everyone can relate to this, but there's a time in, in everyone's life growing up, they, they're, they're walking through a, like a grocery store or something like that. And they come across their teacher and and it's like they're seeing an alien because at that age, you have sort of the understanding that they live at a desk. Uh, so, Definitely. so I did. I like that you sort of revealed a little bit about your personal life. Uh, and I would be remiss not to ask about about some of your hobbies. And then uh, there's also a follow up that I'd like to get the end of the story to where where you got a car for how much can I bench? Well, I'd like to know the, the answer to that too, if, if you want to say it off off Three camera. questions now. <laughs> um, yeah, tell us a little bit about sort of personal interests, life outside of school. Okay. Yeah. Um, before I do that, because I'm going to forget, uh, Muck, your, your comment a moment ago about, you know, in our discussion about uh, taking notes and mm-hmm. being there present reminds me of something that is quite specific to you, which is, and you're not the only person this is our happen with, but when I'm looking out at a sea of faces, first of all, I have trouble distinguishing among faces, but, <laughs> but I can't, what, what does, what I do perceive very clearly is somebody who's listening carefully. So it's very hard to know if somebody who's typing is listening carefully, Yeah. but some, but there are people and, and you, your face you, when you are interested in something and listening, it's just your face just screams it out. <laughs> so it was just so delightful throughout that that year to always I could look out and there Muck was he's listening and he's he's getting it. I can see and he yeah. seems you see like you got you're wide eyed and yeah. uh, and and I can't tell you how much of a difference that makes because we're not automatons up there we're humans and and if it looks like people are bored like if you're bored in the classroom yeah I know that you're bored and. And it's going to, it drains the energy away from me. Yeah. Whereas the opposite is also true. If you're engaged and you seem engaged and it doesn't always, it doesn't mean putting up your hand all the time, even mm-hmm. um, you're adding energy to me and, and to the class. It's a, it is a, a virtuous circle there. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so to, I've, I've taken this off way off the, the path. You initially asked me about <laughs> my interests um, outside of, outside of, um, the desk, yeah, uh, away from the desk. I guess the first thing I'd say is that a lot of my life is at a desk. <laughs> okay, even if the desk is my patio <laughs> yeah. in, in the summertime, um, that's where I do a lot of my work. Yeah, is, is sitting at home. Uh, we live on the lake, and and so um, what? A, it's just like I get paid to sit down with my computer, my dogs at my side, the, the lake in front of me, and I can sit there and write a paper or do some research or prepare for class. And so a lot of my life, I, I love I love what I do. And and so I, I spend a lot of time doing it. Just ask my partner, Kim. Um, you know, we'll, I'll often, we'll eat dinner and then I will, uh, we'll watch a show maybe, and then I'll go back to work. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and by go back to work, I just mean, you know, uh, sit on the lounge chair and yeah. pull, pull up my computer and, and dig into a case or prep for class tomorrow or whatever. Uh, and in many ways, I'm no more at home than when I'm doing that. I, I love it. Yeah. Um, I've been called by more than one pe- person a, a workaholic, and maybe, <laughs> and, and maybe that's true. But if it's a work, if it's if workaholism is is that, I'll take it. I don't, I don't feel like it's it's interfering with my life uh, in any detrimental way. So I'm I'm good with it. You you mentioned in class one of my favorite stories that you said was was the surprise car. <laughs> that you got that you got for your partner Kim. Oh, I yeah. remember that. Yeah. Um, so I I know the lead up to it. You're basically hiding the fact that you got her this this surprise car. I think for her birthday. Yep. Um, how, how does the story end? You, the, it hadn't when you told us about it in class. It hadn't ended yet. It was you were just right. hiding this car still. So um, I was hiding the car. Yeah, I I bought the car. I'd always wanted to buy somebody a car, and who better to buy a <laughs> car? than your partner so I, I bought her this car and I bought it from Ottawa and it needed to be delivered I needed to take delivery before her birthday it was like a week in advance in fact her birthday is coming up so it's a year anniversary on this thing um, so I needed to hide it and so I got a, a, a neighbor to six or seven doors down to uh, allow me to park it in her driveway <laughs> and then um, and then the day of her birthday I, I pulled the car into the driveway put one of those big bows on the front and then she pulled into the driveway but it didn't quite go as planned it's it wasn't a movie scene yeah um, because she pulls in in her old beat up car and she's on the phone first of all Oh, so she's not yeah really. off the cuff not a movie no scene. <laughs> and, and it gets worse Mark, because she's on the phone with her ex-husband okay uh, <laughs> so she's on the phone with her ex-husband makes you look pretty good though <laughs> <laughs> you'll never you'll never believe what just happened <laughs> yeah i don't remember this happening with you john um yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, I think it was a somewhat awkward moment. She saw the bow, and honestly, this is Kim for you. She she didn't ever expect to be given a car. So her first thought after she managed to extricate herself from her ex-husband of the phone call, her thought, first thought she told me afterwards was, he knew I needed a car, so he's found out a go- he's gone out and got me a car, but I'm going to have to pay for it. And how am I going to afford it? So oh. she saw the car and thought, how am I going to afford this? So it was not at all. Like, it was wow. pure for joy. Pure panic. It was kind of panic. Yeah. Hey, but no entitlement there, right? Right. That's a good thing. Exactly. The, the exact opposite of entitlement yeah. is, is Kim. So, uh, but eventually it sunk in and it was all very nice. But oh, You know what? But that's real life and it's genuine. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and that's, yeah. that's better than a movie in that way. It was, it, was, it was great. I'm yeah. very glad I did it. I also, don't want to uh i said i'm a workaholic and i it's not that i spend all my time at work um so i i have i have hobbies i wish i had a better hobby i I, in fact i was just we had a dinner party the other day and i I was asking the folks at the dinner party my friends whether they had hobbies and whether they could give me one Mm. can you give me a hobby (laughs) i need a hobby so i i've had hobbies over the years the one that stuck the longest is flying things remote control oh i did that did you like rc planes yeah yeah so what what did you use to fly? So I, I flew. Well, I still I still do it. Okay. Um, yeah, the RC planes, the full okay. ones. Yeah. I did that for a couple of years. Lost. I must have lost a dozen planes in <laughs> they, woods. Like and stuff. I, I used to have an E flight one. If that. Yeah, the yeah. E flight. Those are so, the beginner ones. I, I can't tell you the number of times I put up signs in the neighborhood saying "lost." 
Uh, uh, midlife crisis. I've lost my plane. <laughs> you could call this number. That's awesome. Um, so I did that, and then I got into drones as well. So okay. I've, I've been through two or three different drones. I've got one now that is uh, that is just under the two fifty. It's like one of the DJI ones. It's two forty nine okay. grams or something. Yeah. Um, it's super powerful for the size. Um, but the problem, and and I fly it, but we live on the lake, so it's a perfect place to fly. I, I chase sailboats and stuff around. Yeah. It's just, it's just so much fun. Yeah. But we've got three dogs and one of them in particular just can, cannot stand the sound of the, uh, blades. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and so she goes berserk and it's a completely unrelaxing experience to fly the thing as a result. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's mainly sits <laughs> on our, our uh, dining room table now. But that, so I, I, I do some of that. I do, um, okay. I fly drones. I, I, uh, what else do I do? I, I, I go to the gym sometimes, not okay. nearly as long or as, as frequently as I used to. Okay. Um, I was love, bodybuilding ever a part of, no, it was not, I, no, I never bought a bodybuild, so okay. to speak. I just, I did work out and I enjoyed lifting heavier weights and stuff, but I, I didn't yeah. think of myself as a bodybuilder. Um, so I, I still do that. Uh, the other thing you mentioned in class, do you still go in the water every day? I do. Okay. Every day. Yeah, every day. So I we didn't catch that the, part, yeah. Yeah. So I we moved into this house on the lake in July of 2020. Okay. And I started going swimming every day, and then I just kept going. Uh, and then it went from September to October to November, and I was still going in. <laughs> wow. And, uh um, so yeah, I, I swim right through the winter. Does uh, it freeze over? It it did two summer two winters ago. It didn't fully freeze over last winter, except for maybe two days, and then I I just I have a big sledgehammer and <laughs> I bring it out. I'll I'll show you a picture after. Um, oh wow! Uh, so I've got a whole a, a little swimming hole uh -huh. that I create, and it's not really swimming in the middle of winter. It's just jumping in and, and then jumping uh, out. Not no like okay. five or seven minutes. I'll oh say. wow! Um, that's how you kind of get get the. Cheaper than an ice bath. Yeah, I know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, honestly, it's it's the best thing I've ever done physically. It's wow. it's the. It's, Have you noticed it make a big difference? I mean, it, it it seems like going in an ice tub has become a relatively popular yeah. thing now. Yeah. Uh, do you notice like the beneficial effects people talk about? Absolutely. How it affects mood, alertness. Oh, like a day without a jump in the lake in the winter. Is it's it's completely different. I mean, I don't really have them anymore. I always jump in, but it's a, it, it's such a, a boost of endorphins. Yeah, and it's just it's not just it's not ephemeral. It doesn't just dissipate in fifteen minutes. It's with you for the day. This this good feeling, um, and it's a combination of things. Part of it is just chemical, but also I think part of it is almost intellectual. Yeah, like there's this challenge. Yeah, there's this, this even the discipline behind it. There's a yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah, there's a commitment. I've com kind of committed to myself to do this, and the water is two degrees or three degrees, and I kind of <laughs> I did it. I defeated that. Uh, you know, I, I met nature. Does your family yeah. think you're nuts or? Oh, do they absolutely. ever, do they ever try? <laughs> no, nobody tries it. My okay. mom thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> I remember once going out, we have neighbors on the lake and, uh, I didn't announce to anybody that I was going to be doing this. So I, I was out one day walking the dog. It was like January or something. And I, I met one of the neighbors who I don't really speak with that much. Yeah. And she said that the word amongst the neighbors was that 
I'd lost a bet. Oh. <laughs> Nobody could figure out Every why day was, for the rest of your life. <laughs> Nobody could figure out why I would do this unless I'd lost a bet. But it's uh, it's very addictive. Yeah. So I, I miss the winters when I'm, when I'm you know, I, I love summer and I love warm weather, but I do miss the cold swims. And okay. so it's, it's nice. It's starting to get cold out there now. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's fun. So how did you end up switching to torts for a while and then now back switching to land transactions contracts and remedies so it's it's really a function of what the law school needs at any given time so okay um mm. i would they were short a torts teacher one okay. year and that was probably seven or eight years ago that i was first asked to teach it i mean you're never it's almost never the case that you're told to teach something, okay. but uh, the dean or the associate dean in charge of uh, of the curriculum will um, will ask you if you want to teach. The, we have a need in torts; would really help us if you could teach. Yeah. So once again, I went up to a cottage and remembered, tried to remember my torts class from way back <laughs> when, and uh, and what torts was all about, and learned it. Uh, and started teaching it. I think I taught it five years for five years, four or yeah. five years, and I would teach it again next year if if asked. Uh, it was a, a, a terrific course to teach. I don't love it as much as contracts, but okay. uh, yeah. And and land transactions is similar. My colleague, when he was associate dean, uh, Eric Knutson, who I think he probably teaches you, yeah, insurance, yeah, yeah. Um, terrific fellow. Uh, well, I love him. He's such fabulous a fabulous teacher. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a. I mean, I've never had him for a class, obviously, but I can't imagine he's anything less than an absolutely stellar teacher because he's such a, 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 a terrific human being Yeah, yeah. Um, who cares so much about uh, his students. I mean, he just cares so much about his students. So uh, Eric was associate dean at the time and, and the, the uh, sessional, I think, who had been teaching land transactions for whatever reason, either wasn't going to teach it again or wasn't being asked to teach it again. And so he thought, well, and this is Eric. Um, you know, Michael teaches contracts and got an interest in private law. And so maybe he'd want to take this on. And it didn't take me very long to decide. I just thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. And, it's right up your alley. And it, it was just, it was just like a perfect fit. <laughs> I'm so glad I, I'm so glad I started teaching it. And then I, I, I you know, if you, they say, if you want to learn something well, teach it. Yeah. Um, there's no better way to learn something than to teach it because you've got to know it so well. So well, yeah. Um, because you're you're only going to sort of teach a little bit of it, but you have to know all the uh, everything outside of the window that you're teaching. And uh, I ended up learning it and then writing a book on it over the last few years. I, I oh. just got published this this past February on uh, thank you on uh, agreements of purchase and sale. Terminate is called termination and rescission of agreements and purchase and sale. It's available at any bookstore that. You know, you care to look at <laughs> Amazon as well. That's terrific. Uh, so I might uh, need that in practice. In <laughs> <laughs> well, you might need it in land transactions. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so I, I can't even remember what. Why did we start down that road? Uh, um, because you were analogizing how you were asked to teach torts and how you were asked yeah, to teach land transactions. Yeah. So it, what I teach in any given year is is a function and part of what I I'm, I know about and 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 what the the law school needs. Yeah. So there's always a 
danger that somebody's going to ask me to teach property law at some point. Um, <laughs> because there's all, we're always sort of Gotta short stay of sharp. property law. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, in a way, I really love the challenge. If I've got the time and, and there's not too much on my plate in terms of um, administrative duties and commitments to scholarship yeah. and writing, to be asked to teach a brand new course uh, is kind of energizing. Right. Uh, yes. It's, it's really fun to be able to dig into an, a new topic and or something that you're only vaguely familiar with and and learn it backwards and forwards and then teach it. It's, it's fun. Really. Fun. Do, do you get a head start in terms of like asking mater for materials from people who've taught a course before to get a, like an yeah? You definitely and, can, yeah. and all our colleagues are really good about, okay. about sharing syllabi and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. This is putting you on the spot a little bit. This is the last question that I really have. Um, if you had a piece of advice for people in our situation, irrespective of what they're pursuing, but just being in law school, what would it be? Or you could orient it more towards people pursuing academia again. So advice for... Like, I mean, what would you tell yourself going back to your time in law school about the pursuit of success in general? So let me start specific with, with kind of nuts and bolts stuff. I would say that uh, it's folly to think you know what you're interested in in terms of legal disciplines. Mm. So um, I would encourage you to take a course in a subject that uh, holds no obvious appeal to you, uh, except perhaps maybe the prof is is good or you, you've had the person before, they have a good reputation, take yeah. a course, even if it's you know, no interest in insolvency and bankruptcy law, but I'll mm -hmm. take a course in it anyway. Um, because you may find that it's exactly your, it's a, an exact fit yeah, for you. So, um, that's actually great advice. It's particularly relevant for everyone doing the recruit right now. I feel like a lot of people are, are enamored by the prospect of making a lot of money, but don't even know if, if they want to practice yeah. corporate or business law. So that, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah, take take courses in in areas you're not interested in, and then on the flip side of the coin, I think too few students take advantage of the opportunity to do an ISP, an independent study project, which is a course, and you can do it for I can't remember exactly, but it's two, three, four, maybe even five credits. You can do big ones too, um, where you find a prof who is willing to supervise the project. And um, you know, you've got an interest. Maybe you took tort law in first year, and you you had a, an interest in a particular case or a particular doctrine, and you wanted to follow it up. But there's no advanced courses in it, so I know what I'll do. I'll I'll do a research project on it, and I'll write a long paper for a prof, uh, and do it for credit. And that's a great opportunity. That's really to, cool. To, to, ah, I, had no uh, I hadn't heard of that either. Yeah, it's a it's it's a thing. Okay, <laughs> that's and, terrific. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if I if I have any uh, good life advice other than um, you know if you money money cannot be your driver mm -hmm. <laughs> money can money may well come but if that's your driver I think it's it's going to be an unhappy yeah. sort of life yeah. um, and and in law in particular. I think you have to like what you're doing and what you're studying and who you're helping and what, you know, the, the area of law you've chosen aligns with your values. Um, 
This is very enlightening for me. Yeah. You've been a great guest and such a good sport. So thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Um, and I hope that the audience has a better appreciation for us, like from your perspective to be a prophet. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you both very much for inviting me. It's an honor to be your first guest. It's, it's, it's our honor to have you as our first guest. Yeah, right. guys. So thanks for listening, everybody. And stay tuned for the next one. Ciao for now. Ciao. <laughs>